Yes, I did. <clears throat> if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you, just raise your hand and Mark will get it to you. Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. And as you're turning there, I would ask of you to please, in thunderous applause, give it up for Linda Sherman, because she's been married to Max Sherman for 45 years. Good work, Linda. Good work. Um, there's cake in the kitchen. We're going to celebrate these two after, after the service, so stick around. Uh, also, this morning, I kind of felt like I was sitting in the wrong spot because for 15 years, Pat and Sheila Indicott sat behind us uh, at Foothills Community Church. These are folks, uh, known them since I was five years old, precious friends that are visiting this morning. So, Romans chapter 1, and I want to just go over the passage that I'm going to handle this morning. Mark read a little bit more to give some context, but if you look at verse 13, yes, what's that? It's not working. Uh, not working? Okay. Romans 1, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may have some fruit among you also, even among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. In this way, for my part, I am eager to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Our Father in heaven, uh, Father God, I ask of you that you would bless us in the pursuit of understanding of your word. I pray that your precious spirit that is in every believer in this building would be at work, uh, illuminating our, our minds, lighting up the truth of this text. And Father, just exactly how it applies to each of us, resulting in your great glory. I pray and ask this in Jesus' name, amen. There's an interesting phrase that is used quite common. Um, perhaps you use this. I'm sure you do. I use this, and it's one you hear all over the place. The phrase that's interesting to me is uh, somebody will say, well, it was a very difficult task, but it was a labor, a labor of love. Now, what do we mean by that? Well, real simply put, it just simply means that somebody who was doing a difficult task, but during the difficulty, they did it out of love. They had something deep in their heart, a, a commitment, an affection, uh, an aspect where I, I am all in on this one. But yeah, doesn't it hurt? Isn't it tough? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, there's some arduous uh, aspects to this, but in the long run, happy to do it, pleased to do it. Love to do it. It is a labor of love. I can't think of too many folks throughout the history of the church who endured greater suffering than the Apostle Paul. There are folks who received suffering 
perhaps as well as the Apostle Paul. But it's tough. When you read and hear all that he took on himself physically, emotionally, spiritually, with a never-ending commitment to the call, a never-ending commitment to the task at hand, to the point that his detractors, those that sought to do him harm, I'm sure at times were just flat irritated because we try to break his spirits down and he just keeps going and going and going. And as I consider the Apostle Paul in the writing of this letter and all that he has endured and all that he will endure, what what amazes me is how much he speaks to his privilege and to his love for the Lord and to the saints. I don't know about you, but you stub your toe in the morning, I stub my toe in the morning, going to be a bad day, right? Little things happen, oh, there's construction, I'm going to be 14 minutes late, the whole day's ruined. And how flimsy my, my attitude can be. Not in the apostle. Not in this man. And I don't give him credit. You know this theologically. I give God the credit. He's the sustainer of this man. I don't boast in Paul. Paul doesn't boast in Paul. He sees this as God's doing. So you sit down with him after his back has been opened up with a whip. He's been beaten with rods and there's marks everywhere. And you say, what are you doing? Give it up. This is ridiculous. And his response is, oh, but I love the Lord so much. I love the body so much. And the world is on its way to torment apart from this gospel. So bring it. I'll absorb it. And I will move forward for Christ's sake. beginning of this man's conversion, told to Ananias that, Ananias, you go to him, and I will show him all that he will suffer for my name's sake. At the very beginning, he was informed, this is going to be tough. Things will be inflicted upon you, Paul, but you will continue, and I'll show my power and my glory through your ministry. And so I want to speak to this blessed obligation, this blessed privilege, this blessed difficult task that was on this guy. And I thought carefully about what two words best put that two things together because this is a labor of love. Is it tough? Of course it is. Nowhere in Scripture does he say, and it never hurt. Nowhere in Scripture does he ever say, oh, you know, it just, God took away all the pain in that moment. No, he, he absorbed the pain. Those are his bones. It's his flesh. It hurts. People turning their back on him, people running away. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that I've got danger here, danger there, danger from false brothers, danger from, danger from, danger from. And you're going, this guy is just living under the, the, the horrific watch of all those that want to see him fall hard. 
that he's so passionate about. He loves so much. God put that in his heart. And so we're smack dab in that idea here in verse 13. Because he wants to go see the Romans. He wants to see the beloved believers in Rome. And so if you notice, he uses a device here that he uses this in other places in some of his other letters. I do not want you to be unaware. It's a, it's a way of simply communicating, pay attention, listen up. I, I, want, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to miss this. It's too important that you get this. I want you to have this clear in your mind. So uh, it's kind of like when you're talking with your kid and they're fumbling with something, you go, put the truck down and look up at me. I want you to hear this, what I'm about to say here. It is important for them to know the intentions of the Apostle Paul. Paul has planned numerous times to visit, but has been stopped. If we look at 13, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. I've been prevented so far. Paul has planned numerous times to visit, but has been stopped. Now, here's the key to that. Paul lived a life of pursuit of ministry directed by God's sovereign will. Paul lived a life in the pursuit of ministry under God's sovereign will. So he walks out, and his car, which he didn't have, has a flat tire, and his first response is, all right, Lord, then what are we doing today? And you can see this in his endeavors. You can see this in how he lives his life. He's, he's strong. I'm not saying he's a lazy man. He's a strong man. He's in pursuit. He plans. No, he says it right here, right? I made many plans. But I was prevented. This is one of the phrases that I love is where he says, the Lord opened a door for the word. Well, who was opening the doors for Paul? Not Paul. Not man. God's opening the doors. And so Paul says, doors shut. I made so many plans to come to you. It's said about your faith throughout the whole world. And so I, I want to come. I want to impart a spiritual gift to you. But thus far, I've been prevented. What he's communicating to them is, in my heart of hearts, before God, I have had the, the cleanest, best of intentions to come to you. And God had other plans. He makes reference to the will of the Lord in the first couple verses ahead of this, by God's will. In verse 10, he says, Always in my prayers, earnestly asking, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. Notice the language. By the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. That would be success. Why? That's what he wants to do. Well, is that what God wants to do? Well, apparently at this point, no. But that's his earnest prayer. Father, I want to. I want to. According to your will, let me go and see them. What an application. I'm not going to rush to application too quickly, but just touch on this. What a way to live life. To work hard, to plan, to be wise in your decision making, and then trust the Lord when stuff gets thrown at you. Okay, Father, then what's next? What do you have for me here? What a question for the believer to ask when they do walk out to the flat tire. Lord, what do you have for me here? Far too often, my first response is not, not that. 
first response is, and that's about it. <laughs> that's just... Paul lived a life of pursuit of ministry directed by God's sovereign will. The great call on Paul's life was found in bearing fruit by grace for God's glory. One more time, key principle. The great call on Paul's life was found in bearing fruit by grace for God's glory. If you look at the second half of 13, he says, that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may have some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. The apostles sought to bear fruit among the Christians in Rome. Now, it's very ambiguous. It doesn't tell us what fruit, what exactly needed to be done, what's going on there in that church. We know that this is a strong church. You hear the way he speaks about them at the beginning of the letter. But he's saying, my desire is to come to you, and I would love to be used in God's hand for your good and for his glory. I would love to see some fruit produced in my coming to you. Fruit in the salvation of the lost, I would argue, and fruit in the maturing and edifying and growing of God's people in Rome. The apostle was not a man in pursuit of his own plans and his own comfort. What if we took a tally, okay? And I'll, I'll use myself as an example. What if we took a tally of Dan Mason last week and said, let's tally up every decision made for the purpose of Dan's comfort. And let's tally up every decision made by Dan for the purpose of God's glory. It's humbling. It's humiliating to pause and consider how many decisions were made based on this is easier. The apostle was not a man who lived his life for his comfort and for his glory. He woke up each morning, boom, going, doing, with a pursuit. He knew why there was breath in his body. Notice he says, as well as the rest of the Gentiles. This is kind of important as far as understanding the, the, um, the, the writing of this letter, what's behind the writing of this letter, because you go, okay, so what is in Paul's mind in reference to the recipients of what he's writing? And, and commentators differ greatly on, is Rome, the Roman church made up primarily of Jews, or is the Roman church made up primarily of Gentiles? And I, I could show you passage after passage that shows both, honestly, because there's passages where it, it seems that the assumption is crystal clear. He thinks this is a church filled with more Jewish people than Gentile people. But then you read this, and he goes, as well as the rest of the Gentiles, as if his summation is, this is a Gentile church there in Rome. My answer, pretty simply, is I believe it's made up of both, most likely more predominantly Gentile. Out of what I've read and what I've seen in what's in this book, that seems to make the most sense to me as I seek to look at the material. It is also clear that there are definitely Jews mixed in with the Gentiles in reference to what he writes. And as you read the letter, it's, it's like certain things he makes reference to you who are under the law. Well, that's not the Gentiles. But in other passages, the rest of the Gentiles, okay, that's not to the Jews. 
And so he's speaking to this mixed body. Now, how does that hit PCBC in 23? It, it, it may not hit us that hard, but beloved, you've got to remember historical context, what's taking place as he writes this letter. The Jews and the Gentiles are coming together as one people of God, one body of God. And Paul is, knows that all of the trappings are just everywhere for these guys. Where the false teachers, the, the, the Judaizers are saying, oh yes, faith in Christ as well as works of the law. You combine that and then you got the best of both worlds and God's pleased. And Paul's response is, that's a damning message. A mixed gospel is no gospel. And you have the Gentiles feeling sheepish and, and half about what, what's going on here. And so, yeah, if that's what you say, obedience to the law, you're, you're God's people, we'll, we'll do that. And Paul comes and he pulled, well, I don't know if he had hair. If he did, he pulled it out because he's just going off the rails with, I can't believe you so quickly deserted him who called you in Galatians chapter 1. And to the Jews who their, their roots are there, their hope is there. Remember, the Lord Jesus said, if, I, if needed, we could, we could make these stones into children of Abraham. Don't look to your lineage for your salvation. Don't be ridiculous. And so Paul, as he writes this letter with piles of controversy, knows that this is going to a mixed bunch seeking to understand the gospel clearly and live together in a culture that's seeking to rip them apart. Talk about a task and a half. Look at verse 14. Notice what he says. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. The apostle Paul recognized his calling from God to preach the gospel. This is uh, axiomatic. I don't have to argue this case. It's crystal clear in the scriptures. just leaps off the page. Paul knew who he was, whose he was, and what he was called to do and be. But because I love you, I'm going to take you to a bunch of passages of scripture. So go to Acts chapter 9, verse 15, and I'm going to move kind of quick on this. So if you just want to jot them down, I'll read it for you, um, your call. But Acts chapter 9, verse 15. This is said to Ananias at the very beginning at Paul's conversion. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. For what? To bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Acts chapter 20, Acts 20, 24, Acts 20, 24. And remember, guys, what I'm, what I'm seeking to put together here are just some passages that speak specifically to the calling of the Apostle Paul, okay? Acts 20, 24. One of my very favorite passages in all of Scripture in how he gives his farewell to the elders, but just look at 24. He says, but I do not make my life of any account nor dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel 
of the grace of God. What a cool phrase, of the good news of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Just a, a, a short little statement, but a pithy one. Chapter 9, verse 16. Very much like what he says in Romans. For if I proclaim the gospel, I have nothing to boast. For I am under compulsion. You can put obligation. For woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. Woe is me if I do not proclaim the gospel. In the second letter to the same church, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now catch this. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your slaves. Please notice, not God's slaves, though I think that's true. Your slaves for the sake of Jesus. You hear that? What, a, what a, um, an attitude, what a perspective on ministry. We don't preach ourselves. It's not about showing me. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord. Preacher small, Jesus big. Preacher fading, Christ glorious, bright, magnificent. So folks leave the church, they walk away going, oh, Christ is magnificent. Well, who was preaching today? You know, I can't remember. I can't remember, and I don't care. Christ is magnificent. But Paul's perspective was, we, we preach Christ as Lord, and we're your slaves. We're there to serve the body, to make sure they're okay, to make sure they're loved, cared for, instructed in the truth, for Christ's sake. See, this is what's so interesting is in the service of God's people, you're really serving Christ. You're serving, because you love him, you're serving who he loves. Now, you love them as well. That's all combined, okay? But I love Jesus Christ, beloved Hear me in this, if you will. I do not continue to serve at PCBC only because I love you. Now, that's a benefit. That's a blessing. That's a rich, you know, I can't express how rich of a blessing, okay? But that's not what keeps me here. That's not the sustaining. 
far deeper than that. Because I love Jesus. And I'm under the blessed obligation. <clears throat> Look at Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, and look at verse 11. Again, following the Apostle Paul in reference to his understanding who he is, whose he is, and what he's called to. Verse 11. For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man. For I neither received it from man... Nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being far more zealous for the traditions of my fathers." But please notice the actor that comes into play and changes everything in 15. But when God, now this is interesting, he goes way, way farther back than the road to Damascus. But when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. Why? So that I might proclaim him as good news among the Gentiles. You hear that? So this is what's so interesting, right? You sit down with the Apostle Paul and you slide over a really good cup of joe and you're visiting with him and you say, man, Paul, so, so God, he started all of this on the road to Damascus. No. No, he set me apart before I was born. God is not a God of, of uh, plan B's and C's. He, no, he, he's been in on this. He created me for this. Before I was born, he set me apart unto this call. Paul is saved by grace, being sanctified by grace, commissioned by grace, and empowered and sustained by grace. This is why, this is why he wrote this. We'll be here in about six years. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. It's from him. It's through him, it's, to, it's, it's about the Lord. It's not about Paul. It's about the Lord. The Apostle Paul is under obligation. Look at the verse. We're back in Romans chapter 1, verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Well, what does he mean by this? Well, this is where you've got to go back into the historical context a little bit and just immerse yourself in... What would the original readers, how would they hear this in this letter? How would, they, how would they respond to this? What are they hearing? Well, 
at that time, the Greeks would be those who are the highly sophisticated. They were immersed in the Greek language. They were immersed in the Greek culture. They were the, um, the elite, the smart. Um, when it says the Greeks and the barbarians, and then in the next uh, line, wise and unwise, I believe he's communicating the exact same thing with the two different parallels, okay? So just a parallelism here, but the, the, the point is the same. Greeks, barbarians, wise, unwise. Greeks are those who are the elite, the brilliant, the smart. Everybody looks up to them. They are the wise in the eyes of everybody. And then there's the barbarians. This is a very interesting word, and I'll, I'm going to chop this up, but it's a, let me find my notes real quick. It's a onomatopoetic construction. And all that means, all that means is that it sounds like what the word means. And the idea was when the Greeks heard the other languages being spoken, it sounded like somebody speaking gibberish. Burr, 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 and they call it barbarians. That's where that word comes from. Okay? It's a slanderous term. It's a word of putting them down. Because there's the Greeks, and then there's the morons, the foolish, the unwise, the barbarians. So you've got the, the, uh, the division, right? This is the point. In society, the division. Well, there's those people, right? What do we say? Other side of the tracks, right? We have ways of saying this. They're no different. They had ways of dividing society into the haves and the have-nots the elite and the not-so-elite, the poor and the rich and the uh, middle class. Oh, man, look at that. We talk just like they did. So what's Paul saying when he says, I'm under obligation to the Greeks and to the barbarians? Simply put, I am under obligation before the Lord to herald the gospel to anyone and everyone. And there is no, this message is no respecter of person. No human has a leg up on another. Nobody can say, I'm wiser, so that's why I'm saved. Nobody can say, I was raised in a Christian home, so of course I'm a Christian. You know how many Christian home kids are not believers? And how many folks were raised in horrific settings and the Lord gloriously redeems them? So the Greek, the elite can say, well, of course. Of course, of course, we know that. We know who we are. And the barbarians, what? They don't know? Paul is saying, no, it does not work like that. Salvation is not based on something seen in the person. He says this later where he says, whether Jew or Gentile or male or female or free or slave. No, one gospel, one saving message for all humanity if you are outside of Christ, judgment waits you. It makes no difference how you were raised, where you were raised. In Christ, saved. Outside of Christ, unsaved. And what he's, what he's heralding here is I'm under obligation to herald this message to anyone and everyone, whoever the Lord sends me to, God, may I never think somebody's below this message or above this message. Where the poverty-stricken individual that looks at you and, and 
you can quickly come with a judgmental spirit and look down on them almost as if they're below you to share that gospel message. Or you come in context, or you come in in uh, the, the you come in front of somebody. I had a fancy word and I forgot it. Who is brilliant? So many degrees on their wall. Ah, oh, they just have all the elite education. Smarter, just smart as a whip. Brilliant, brilliant people. And you actually feel in your heart just a little bit of timidity to take your simple gospel to somebody so small. Paul's response? Nope. One message for all. Christ. And whether they're brilliant, whether they're not that sharp, whether they're poor, whether they're rich, I don't care. Nobody's beyond. Nobody's below. They're not above this. They're going to hear Christ. They're not below this. They're going to hear Christ. Everybody in between, they're going to hear Christ. I'm under obligation to do this. Now, what a term, right? Obligation. Obligation? That's a have to, right? That's a have to. The Apostle Paul is under obligation. Why is Paul under obligation and to whom? Well, here's a few. Paul is under obligation on, in light of God's commission on every believer. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, okay? So there's, a, there's just a blanket scope there for every single Christian, including everybody who's a believer sitting in this room this morning. The commission didn't change. It's not been erased. You have no excuse. I have no excuse. There's your commission. You either fail at it or you pursue it, but there's your commission. And Paul's under that too. But secondly, he, Paul, there's an obligation on Paul particularly due to his calling as an apostle. God laid this calling on him at the very beginning, and he's been walking in it his entire life up to his martyrdom. He's also uh, under obligation in light of the great need for the gospel in the world. Now, uh, uh, one of the commentators gave a great illustration. I thought, yeah, that's true. So a firefighter is, is walking by, and a house is on fire, and the lady's up there screaming, needing help, and the firefighter goes, ah, it's not that good with words. Uh, maybe I'll just keep walking. No, you're under obligation. You have the tools. You have the know-how. You have the help. And you're going to just walk by. You are under obligation to get up there and help. And so the dire straits that the world is in, Paul is under obligation to everybody to herald this message. It's as if somebody were to come with the antidote to cancer and he's told that, ah, uh, I just don't really want to go. I don't like to travel. You're under obligation. You must go help. But I would also argue, beloved, Paul puts this obligation upon himself as well. Did you hear it? In 1 Corinthians 9.16, Woe is me if I preach not Christ. And so when you think about all those different factors that funnel into this guy's mind and heart, I must devote my life to this. I must. I want to walk into this obedience, in this obligation, this labor of love. 
And look at verse 15. In this way, for my part, I'm eager. Just stop there for a second. In this way makes in reference to, uh, is in reference to for my part. And it goes back to what he has said up to this point in the context. What's his part? I want to come to you. I've planned to come to you. It's, it's something I want. I, I'm eager to come to you. The Lord has stopped me for his good purposes, and, and I understand that. But for my part, as far as I'm concerned, I want to be there. I want to be in your presence. I want to minister. And this word eager has not left me alone this week. I am eager to do this. I'm not begrudging this. I'm under obligation, and I'm eager for the obligation. You see that? There's two pieces going on here. I'm under obligation to come and herald this message. Oh, but I want it. I want this obligation. Yes, it's labor, but it's a labor of love. I want to do this. I want to lay my life down. I want to spend and be spent for the gospel and for the salvation of souls and for the maturing of the church for God's glory. Notice what he says particularly here, beloved. He says, in this way, for my part, I am eager to what? To proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He is eager to preach. Now, that, that's just which hits me right in the heart. I've said for years, when, when Mark reads the text and he closes his Bible, it's kind of like the bull rider that gives the nod. Open the gate. Let's go. I'm ecstatic. I've been working on this sermon this week, and it's just filled my heart. It's filled my mind. And if I don't deliver this, I'm going to explode. So, so we must preach. And Paul, this is what he's saying. He's saying, oh, I'm, I'm eager to declare. I'm eager to, to let it out there. Haven't you felt that, guys, where, where you have shared the gospel with somebody, and as you got over that hump of being a little bit timid, you just start to feel alive, spiritually alive. And, and the words are coming, and Christ is magnified, and the person is listening, and you're going, God's using me to herald this. I'm eager for that. I'm convinced what feeds our desire and eagerness to share the gospel is for us to share the gospel. In other words, the more we do it, the more we just we, we get a taste for it, a hunger for it. We want to see God glorified in that. And so Paul says, I'm eager. I'm excited. I want to come and herald the message. I want to preach it. That concept of preaching is a, is a heralding of a message. It's somebody coming into, hear ye, hear ye, ringing the bell. Everyone, listen up. I have something to share from the king. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The work of preaching is the highest and greatest and most glorious calling which anyone can ever be called. Now, it's funny because that's written by a preacher. <laughs> but I believe that. He also said the most urgent need in the Christian church today is true preaching. And as it is the greatest, most urgent need in the church, it is obviously the greatest need of the world also. Charles Spurgeon one time said, if I was, was told that I could not enter heaven but could pick an alternate state, he said, I, I, would, I would choose certain moments when I was preaching. 
because I felt so near and dear to him. felt so close to the Lord. The apostle has a tremendous desire to herald in Rome. This obligation is one that is laid upon a completely willing beast to bear that burden. Preaching the gospel was Paul's devotion. It was his joy, not his task. It was the candy. It was the dessert, not the main dish. It was the, it was the oh, the icing. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, but they, they opened up your back. Oh, I know, but I got to preach Christ. You're in house arrest. I know, but I shared Christ with the king. How else are you going to get to the king but get arrested, right? This, no doubt, is in reference to preaching the gospel to the lost that are in Rome, but it is also obviously clear that he intends to preach the gospel in further manner to the saved. Now, track with me here, okay? Why preach the gospel to Christians? Unfortunately, and I mean this with all my heart, unfortunately, sometimes the church can refer to the gospel as the gates in which you get in. And then what, you leave the gates? What's the gospel to you, Christian? You've come to a church. Some of you have come to this church since almost when it began, so like 28 years ago. And I know from Pastor Mark, and I know from my own soul, and I know from the elders and the leadership of this church, you've heard the gospel Sunday in, Sunday out. Why herald the gospel to Christians who believe the gospel? Here's a few reasons that I jotted down. We never reach the bottom of the barrel of the truth regarding our salvation. You never touch the bottom of that barrel the more you search out what's happened in salvation. More and more and more and more and more. Secondly, it strengthens us in our battle against works righteousness. I, by nature, want my works to be counting for my salvation. And the gospel shuts me down cold, Sunday in, Sunday out. Number three, it strengthens us in spiritual warfare, where Satan will come and bring your sins against you. Well, beloved, let me remind you, you have an advocate with the Father. Christ stands at the Father as your advocate, as your righteousness. Number, wherever I left off, it, uh, let's see. it helps us in our preparation in sharing the gospel when we're out and about on our own. See, the gospel being at the forefront of PCBC is purposeful. We want to glorify Christ, but it also prepares us to head out of those doors. And PCBC, we, we just kind of break up, but we want that to be clear in our minds and full in our hearts to go herald that message. Next, we glorify our God in greater ways the more we grasp just what he's done for us. God is more and more and more glorified in the worship of Dan Mason the more I search into that barrel of what he's done in the gospel. Next, it reveals more and more the great need mankind is in regarding his salvation. Next, it... it I'm going to say next a few times, all right? So next, it grows our eternal gratitude to the Lord. It grows it. I am so much more grateful at 
uh, 38 than I was at 28. Because I just keep going and digging and digging, going, I had no idea what the Trinity was up to. And the more I see what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were doing as the Father plans, the Son purchases, and the Spirit applies, as I walk through that, I just am amazed, astounded. And that's just a dumb 38-year-old. So what more? What more is the Lord going to let me have in this lifetime to see the glories of the gospel? Next, it gives us a better grasp on the big picture of redemptive history. The more you look at the gospel, the more you see all of redemptive history start to unfold. And lastly, it reveals more and more the Christ-centeredness of Scripture as well as all of history. The more you come back to the message of the gospel. So you go, Paul, why are you going to preach the gospel to a bunch of saints? Because it is the food that God uses to nourish us. Now, is there other doctrines and other things we learn? Of course, of course. But never detached from the gospel. Never detached from the gospel. So four points of application really quickly. Number one, let us never forget our commission. Let us never forget our commission. You exist for a purpose. You exist for a purpose, and that purpose is not your happiness. That's a lie. It's a demonic lie. Number two, may the Lord give us a greater, and here's the word, eagerness to herald the one saving message of Christ. Happy to do it. Joyful in doing it. Number three, there must be a continual return to the gospel in the life of the church. There must be a continual return to the gospel in the life of the church. Just think about this for a second. When we baptize, that's a depiction of the gospel. We come to the Lord's Supper, that's a depiction of the gospel. The heralding is, a, is, is the heralding of the good news of the gospel. The songs are in light of the gospel. Beloved, you see there's, there's a thing here going on? We are a gospel-centered people. And lastly, I just close this service with one question for you to ponder. Whose glory did you wake up for this morning? Whose glory? When your eyes opened and you jumped out of bed or rolled out of bed or however you get out, Whose glory was first? I can't answer it for you. You can't answer that for me. But I pray that the living God, I pray with all my heart, He is more and more and more the reason you get out of bed. Father, what would you have me do today for your name? Our Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for PCBC. I pray you'd bless them, Father, by the glorious truth of the gospel. And Lord, let us with joy 